Hello, and welcome to Humanities Matter, brought to you by Brill. I'm Lee Chung Greco, and this week we'll be looking at key issues in the field of humanities. I'm speaking today with Professor Corey Blad. He's author of Searching for Saviors, Economic Adversities, and the Challenge of Political Legitimacy in the Neoliberal Era. Uh, Professor Blad, thanks so much for speaking with us today. Thank you very much for having me. So first of all, can you explain how state-led neoliberalization contributes to economic adversity? Sure. Um, You know, just the kind of idea of neoliberalization, uh, if we step back just a little bit, it's kind of, it's become a little bit more problematic in the contemporary era, but the idea behind uh, liberal capitalism or liberal economic um, affairs is really rooted in market orientation and allowing the market to dictate actions, whether they are political actions, whether they're social actions. Essentially, the idea behind what we have come to term neoliberalism is the ideology that uh, the market should be essentially autonomous, able to kind of determine various paths with an emphasis on economic growth. So in that vein, the idea behind um, neoliberalism as it's centered on economic growth should be broadly acceptable, should be broadly kind of championed. And in many cases, it is. The problem is, however, that the role of regulation, particularly in the form of the state, plays a really important role in allowing capitalism to do what capitalism wants to do, which is maximize profit. And in that kind of light, the regulatory context of the state allows for the kind of mitigation of, you know, not to, not to kind of put too fine of a point on it, but for example, um, uh, wage decreases, uh, wage controls. So the kind of more equitable distribution of the benefits of that overall profit going to more people. In a liberal capitalist context or in a neoliberal context, those regulatory kind of uh, protections um, or from a neoliberal perspective barriers are minimized or removed. And in that, the idea is that you're going to enhance overall profit and therefore expansion and growth. The theory is that that expansion will then create more jobs, will create more opportunities, and the so-called trickle-down effect um, takes place where you have uh, more economic opportunities for more people and not necessarily just for the the owners, uh, CEOs, affluent, etc. The problem in practice, though, is that the tendencies associated with um, growth maximization really put a lot of pressure on companies, for example, and just, you know, this could be uh, extended to all sorts of different examples. It puts a lot of pressure, um, especially as these companies go public. Um, So shareholder pressure, overall growth um, incentivization to basically maximize profits by any means necessary. And what that ultimately does is puts downward pressure on wages in particular, and really just kind of uh, an attempt to kind of decrease overall costs in general. 
but it's this impact on wages because essentially in most industries, uh, the large number of overhead costs um, or the largest amount of overhead costs go towards wages and goes towards labor. So in that light, the pressure on companies to keep wages um, manageable for, to use a diplomatic term, or to decrease them by, you know, really as many means as you can, um, places that kind of disproportionate emphasis on profit growth with a kind of increasing cost on decreasing things like benefits, um, overall expenditures in terms of average wage, um, hourly wage, salaried wage, however somebody is giving uh, their money and bringing it back to their household. So in, you know, that's one part of the equation. The other part of the equation is that in a neoliberal context, the emphasis on reducing regulatory capacities of the state means that this emphasis is broad term emphasis on almost ubiquitous, not in practice, but in theory, um, tax reduction and state revenue decreases ultimately puts a lot of pressure on public services. So to make a long story short, the kind of combined effect of neoliberalism on households, on average households, regardless of country, regardless of location, is to basically either stagnate or decrease earning potential um, at the same time increasing costs for uh, everything from healthcare, um, you know, retirement, education, transportation, whatever the case may be, things that have traditionally coming out of the, the kind of tranquilities, you know, embedded liberal period from what, 1944 through 1970s or so, um, you know, these public services, are increasingly diminished and the kind of ideology of privatization places increased cost responsibilities, not on governments through tax revenues, but on individuals and households through actually paying for those respective services through the context of privatization. So again, long story short, there's a lot of downward pressure in order to kind of fuel and maintain economic growth um, and, and really profit maximization um, that isn't shared. Uh, it's not distributed equitably. Um, what ends up happening is that for large portions of the population, as these economic trends kind of continue, and the irony is as we see economic growth kind of increase and increase and increase, the ability for households to actually afford the increased cost of living, increased household expenditures, um, increased daily expenditures becomes uh, more and more challenging. Yeah, you talked about um, this enormous amount of growth that we experienced in the post-war period, um, and then that kind of uh, dips off in the 1970s. What happened there exactly? Um, what uh, sort of... Um, economic theories were at play in that post-war period that uh, the state still function as a kind of regulator and even as a protector in some cases? Yeah, I mean, and this is really um, coming out of uh, a, a much more liberal or deregulated period uh, in the kind of pre-war era. Um, and essentially, we're talking about, um, you know, a kind of an Atlantic 
capitalism here, you know, Europe and North America for all intents and purposes, um, still the age of colonialism in this, in this context. So essentially after the second world, really at the very end of the second world war, the, the so-called Bretton Woods system emerged as a way to kind of restart this kind of transatlantic, um, you know, capitalist context um, through kind of two mechanisms. The first was an emphasis on national economic growth um, that was really ironically facilitated through um, a, kind of a dollar hegemonic um, international system. Uh, supposedly governed by the International Monetary Fund and uh, essentially what would become the World Bank. Um, but for all intents and purposes, this kind of national emphasis on growth was rooted in uh, large-scale trade surpluses and the attempt to try and encourage increased manufacturing for export purposes. And in the kind of post-war period, that worked fairly well. Um, it, it facilitated American consumption, the kind of expansion, and the U.S. was the, the one country that was encouraged to run a trade um, a trade deficit. So, you know, we bought a lot of stuff. We sent a lot of money out. Um, you know, that, that system kind of worked okay. And at the same time, you had uh, the emergence of the General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs, or GATT, which was an attempt to kind of gradually work toward what we would ultimately refer to as globalization emerging in the 1980s and really kind of taking off in the 1990s. But this, um, the role of the state in this kind of Bretton Woods period, this embedded liberal period, uh, was central, was absolutely central. Um, ultimately, what ended up happening was a dramatic encouragement uh, ideologically uh, and on the back of kind of Keynesian uh, economic theory to really try and enhance the consumptive capacity of domestic populations. So if you could encourage people to spend money, uh, that was going to be the driver of your economy. And in order to increase uh, people's consumptive capacity, you had to do things like allow wage increases um, and pay, you know, uh, uh, provide an increase in public services that took that household spending burden off of individuals and placed that burden, you know, ultimately through tax revenues, but placed that burden on the state. So the state in many uh, national economies becomes responsible for um, increased health care provision, increased educational provision, uh, increased pension provision, uh, infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So as the state becomes more responsible for providing these services and taking that individual burden away from households, households then are able to develop in the best case scenarios um, the opportunity uh, for large scale consumption. Um, so the idea of uh, individual home ownership becomes enhanced and expanded. Uh, the idea of large-scale consumption uh, in the form of automobiles, in the form of, you know, just mass consumer items, all of these different things really kind of take off um, to a certain extent in this period. Where that starts to break down in the 1970s is largely rooted in... Um, well, really several things. Um, but the kind of predominant shock was through um, uh, two successive um, OPEC oil embargoes. 
that increased energy costs globally. That, in addition to the kind of um, problematic management, shall we put it, of the, um, the dollar hegemonic system and kind of the emergence of various centers of dollar trading, you had kind of ultimately the ingredients for a large-scale collapse, um, which is why Nixon ended the, um, the overall Bretton Woods system in 1971, and we had a, a new developing kind of global currency system emerge in 1973. But by that point in time, the uh, increase in the cost of everything was dramatically rising. And at the same time, a lot of companies uh, globally, well, again, most of this is taking place in Europe and North America, um, to be completely frank. The kind of dramatic impact of these overall price increases impacted overall stagnation to the point where the, the 70s turns into almost a lost decade uh, for, for a lot of people. And this idea of promoting consumption loses a lot of favor. So that, you know, the combination of all of those factors ultimately results in the opening for an ideological shift away from this um, really kind of demand side uh, centered ideology of Keynesian economics towards a much more um, you know, supply side orientation found in neoliberal economics. So again, in a long-winded and probably over-explanatory way, that's, that's pretty much, um, and that shift into the 1980s really was dramatically kind of championed by those who would kind of minimize the role of the state. I mean, Ronald Reagan referred to government as evil. Um, you know, uh, you know this. So this this kind of um, Oh, sorry, I wasn't supposed to say names, but the um, the overall emphasis on on state decreasing capacities for regulation and allowing the market to take care of all of these things begins with that kind of decline and demise in the 1970s. So we have that decline, and then fast forward to today, we're seeing this rise of nationalism. Uh, throughout the globe, uh, even in places like Sweden and Finland, which are two of the countries that you chose to study uh, for this paper. Um, and you mentioned that the rise of nationalism is not the cause of immigration. That almost seems more like a byproduct of uh, this frustration that people have with their economic adversity. Um, and so I'm wondering, how come these nationalist strategies don't change market-oriented reforms? Can you give an example of like any of those nationalist strategies that have been proposed, and yet they don't really do anything to change this problem of economic adversity or change this sort of widening chasm that we're seeing right now between the rich and the poor? Sure. Um, I think a lot of that comes in with, um, you know, one of the, the theoretical kind of um, pieces that I use, uh, you know, Pierre Bourdieu's concept of doxa and this this idea that um, there's a kind of a singular way to look at something. Um, you know, there it, uh, in, uh, in the British uh, kind of parlance, uh, the emergence of this idea of there is no alternative. There is no alternative to market. Um, kind of to market determinism. Um, 
this reality poses really significant challenges for nationalist parties. So when they want to, for example, and this is, you know, regardless of, of country orientation, when nationalist parties want to enhance the economic viability of individual countries, they're really limited in what they can do simply because of that dominance of, uh, you know, kind of neoliberal capitalism, the, the kind of idea that you really can't do much in terms of expanding kind of state regulatory capacities. Um, you know, this is being seen dramatically in the United States right now, where you have, uh, you know, greater emphasis on tariff controls, but really kind of seeing the kind of limits of what can be done within a, a, a deeply integrated and deeply interdependent global economy in terms of production, in terms of supply chains. Um, there's, there are a number of different roadblocks that, that these parties run into. Um, and so if you couple the, the kind of structural context, if you will, um, with a really challenging ideological milieu. Uh, most nationalist parties tend to be, um, you know, kind of more right-oriented. Um, and mostly, this is, this is not universal. And, and actually, Finland provides a really interesting um, counterpoint to that as the, the true Finn party that, um, you know, represents... I guess the the formalization of, of Finnish nationalist politics um, is you know avowedly quote unquote left oriented. Um, they're they're very supportive of the, the Finnish welfare state, although they are becoming increasingly anti tax, which is which is interesting in a lot of different ways. But the the underlying reality of what ideologies exist economically don't stray very far from those fundamental neoliberal tenets of um, minimal regulation, tax reductions, reduce state revenues and reduce state capacities to regulate and to provide respective services. That has not shown over the, the past 30 to 40 years any capacity to actually float all ships, as the as the saying goes. Um, so these kind of sustained economic adversities that really give rise to nationalist parties aren't really able to be dealt with economically, um, which is the the fun, really the central problem. So uh, many in many cases, these nationalist parties uh, are able to gain tremendous initial support. Uh, you know, by act, by kind of highlighting the the economic precarity of large scale portions of their respective populations, but they have trouble kind of maintaining this this kind of momentum, this electoral momentum, uh, primarily because when they're in positions of power, they're not able to actually do much in terms of adjusting or mitigating um, these these adverse economic conditions. Um, you know, other examples of where this might not necessarily be a left-right kind of um, dichotomy show up uh, really significantly in Scandinavia, where you have the kind of the protection of the welfare state as being a mechanism of nationalism. Uh, this shows up a lot in Denmark with the Danish People's Party, where this kind of emergent welfare chauvinism, um, you know, we need to protect the Danish welfare state uh, from you know, people who may or may not uh, be contributing to the, the state revenues that are needed to generate that overall system. Um, 
but in an environment of increasing liberalization, which is true of Sweden in particular, um, but also to a significant degree in Finland, and this may be starting to kind of um, shift back a little bit, but the the 2000s in particular, really the 2010s, um, at the Economist voted Sweden the most, you know, the, the most rapidly neoliberalizing country in the world. Um, uh, so the the kind of underlying shifts and changes of this this kind of economic integration and the diminishing or the alterization of some of these public services. So maybe we're not going to provide your entire pension anymore. Maybe we're going to require that you pay for 50% of it. Or, you know, in as these kind of shifts and changes happen, the burden becomes more placed as it has in, in other um, kind of advanced capitalist countries. The cost burden for these services gets placed more and more on individual households. And as you have a deregulating context in all of these instances, you have increasing costs for all sorts of different things. And I emphasized in the paper uh, increases in rents and increases in overall home costs. So mortgages, uh, the ability to actually have a home. So as these costs increase, the ability for governments, regardless of whether you are um, a nationalist party or otherwise, become really constrained because of this almost universal acceptance um, with a few exceptions of uh, a need to increase market integration and increase uh, market determinism, i.e. neoliberalism. Um, this was found really predominantly in Finland with the this, uh, Social Democratic Party, which lost a tremendous amount of support and many of whom, as was the case in Sweden, as was the case in the UK, um, with the kind of emergence of the UKIP, um, and in many, many other places, that that kind of traditional labor shift, those those manufacturing jobs that used to be so important to the overall kind of economy in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, um, those populations felt abandoned by you know labor parties and left leaning parties that that embraced these market reforms, the, the so-called third way of the 1990s, um, you know, the, the Clinton administration, the US and Tony Blair and all that stuff in the UK, um, that was a broadly integrated kind of strategy. And the idea that you could have a, you could have economic growth while at the same time, kind of sort of trying to also protect your, your traditional constituencies and ended up becoming uh, a, ultimately a, a failed strategy. And a lot of people um, in all of these respective countries became deeply frustrated with that kind of, they, they felt abandoned by social democratic parties, by labor parties, um, and really shifted their allegiance to someone, anyone who might provide some sort of different strategy. Um, and you see this trend happening, you know, not just in nationalist parties, but just in kind of the rise of tertiary parties, uh, you know, really around the world, um, you know, parties that had very little to do with formal politics before five star in Italy, um, the, the emergence of the pirate party, for example, in, in Iceland, in Germany, uh, in the Netherlands, you see these kind of 
people searching for alternatives to the traditional kind of um, dominant parties. And they're really just looking for someone who will make life better um, in, in a material context for large scale portions of the population that hasn't been happening within the context of neoliberal capitalism. That brings us to an end of part one of our conversation with Professor Corey Blad. Be sure to stay tuned for part two on the Humanities Matter podcast by Brill. You are listening to the Humanities Matter podcast. You can find more podcast episodes on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast.